Hi, I'm Matt Dawson and welcome to OrthoScience Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Raymond Goodrich, who is the Executive Director of the Infectious Disease Research Center and a Professor of Immunology and Pathology in the Department of Microbiology at Colorado State University. His research group is currently focused on methods to safeguard blood transfusion products and to create and rapidly produce novel vaccine formulations that can be used to address infectious diseases. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Goodrich. Well, thank you, Matt. Very happy to be here. So to start things up today, you know, could you give us a quick overview of the virology of this novel coronavirus? Well, coronaviruses have been known for some time. They were first discovered in birds and mammals in the 1930s. And then later, around 1965, uh, they were identified to be present in humans and have the potential for causing disease in humans. Primarily, those are respiratory diseases that affect uh, the lungs in particular. The viruses are named as a family because of how they appear. Corona means crown. It's based on the virus's distinctive appearance when it's viewed through an electron microscope. There are these spikes that are present on the surface of the viral particles uh, that form a crown that surrounds the outer shell of the virus. Starting around 2002, however, with the uh, appearance of SARS, and uh, in 2012 with the appearance of MERS, which are coronaviruses, uh, they began to spread more broadly uh, than previous uh, type coronaviruses, and they were quite lethal. Um, the lethality rates were, were fairly high, so it gained global attention uh, when these viruses uh, uh, became present in human populations and started causing disease. And perhaps uh, now we can look back at that, say it was a forewarning or a hint at the potential danger of these coronaviruses in general. Most recently, of course, as we've all been experiencing the appearance of coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2, um, which spreads uh, far more effectively than SARS or MERS, but is proving to be a little bit less deadly uh, than those agents uh, in human populations on a global basis. So that's a really great background. Can you give us a little bit of more information about how this coronatype virus infects its host cells and why, what about that makes these symptoms so broad and the time so severe? Sure. There are, there are several significant features. I think one of the most significant features uh, related to the disease that this virus causes has to do with the way it enters and infects cells. It enters via that spike protein binding to receptors uh, that are present on the surface of cells, in particular the ACE2 receptor, which is angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor, which is present in a variety of cells, including uh, cells in the intestine, in the lung, in the endothelium, in the brain. And it's, it's because of that extensive presence of the receptor in human tissues um, that is the reason that drives why the symptoms are so broad and complex. Because each of those organs, each of those tissue beds is being infected by the virus via the binding through that receptor. I think most recently research is beginning to show more places where uh, that virus can enter, where the receptor is present. In, in fact, in blood in particular, most recently, um, we have been finding that uh, there are receptors that are present in blood components, such as red blood cells. Uh, there's a recent study by Thomas et al. that's in preprint that suggests that the presence of the ACE receptor in red blood cells can lead to binding and uptake of the red cells of that virus 
It can't replicate in the red cells because it doesn't have the machinery to do that, uh, but it can cause changes in the proteomics and metabolomics of those cells that can have implications for uh, transfusion-based products. Research is also showing that the virus can hijack the body's own systems and can trick it into upregulating uh, ACE2 receptors in places where it's usually only expressed at low or medium levels, uh, and that includes the lungs, uh, not normally expressed in high levels there, but essentially the virus can enter and cause uh, changes in cells that lead to overexpression uh, that create essentially more targets for uh, the virus to enter and infect those cells. As those ACE2 receptors increase in the, in the body, they can bind ACE, uh, which plays a role in regulating the body's inflammatory response. And that can lead to uh, exacerbation of the inflammation. And one of the symptoms that we see, which causes a lot of morbidity and mortality in patients infected uh, with this virus, is this increased inflammatory response uh, that you see as a result of the infection. Shuts down airways and prevents uh, breathing and oxygen uptake, uh, which can lead to uh, severe react, uh, effects and uh, mortality in those patients. And we also know that the immune response uh, to the virus can also lead to other complications as well. Our own bodies trying to fight off the virus can lead to complications that actually accelerate the virus's expansion and, and growth in cells in the body. Uh, through mechanisms of uh, antibody-dependent enhancement. Uh, so I think all of these factors, what we know and what we're learning about how the virus interacts with cells and tissues and organ systems in the body is incredibly important to bear in mind as we work toward a vaccine and in the use of uh, therapeutics uh, such as convalescent plasma. That was really fascinating. So for all of our listeners looking at your expertise, can you describe a bit about what pathogen reduction technology is or PRT and what role do you see that having in transfusion medicine during an outbreak like this? PRT, as you say, stands for pathogen reduction technology. Uh, generally, it's a combination of a chemical or a photosensitizing agent, and uh, in the case of photosensitizing agents, is combined with light. Um, the product, the photosensitizer or the chemical agent, is added to the blood product, and then the product is exposed to a light source, and that triggers a chemical reaction uh, that can lead to specific changes in nucleic acids. Uh, that result in, in the shutting down of the ability of that particle to replicate. Um, the methods that currently are in use include using riboflavin in UV light, it's known as the Mirasol process, uh, sorolin in UV light, uh, known as the intercept process, uh, methylene blue in visible light, which I think commercially is known as Theraflex. And then there are also other methods that don't require light exposure, like uh, the use of solvent detergent, uh, treatment of plasma, which has been around for quite some time and very effective at being able to inactivate uh, uh, envelope viruses in, in plasma products. Um, I think it's important to note that not all of these technologies are available in all locations. Uh, only Intercept and the SD plasma products are approved for use in the United States. An earlier study that was used in, in China for treating convalescent plasma utilized pathogen reduction technology as an added layer of protection from transfusion transmitted disease for patients that were already uh, battling um, the SARS-CoV-2 
uh, virus. Having a method that you can use upfront to reduce or eliminate the risk of transfusion transmitted uh, infection is the place where these methods have their greatest potential. Uh, because we're learning about the virus, we're learning about the disease, we're learning about the presence of it in these blood products. But we have a case, for example, with convalescent plasma, where we can utilize a blood product as a therapeutic. And we want to be able to do that without introducing additional risk. The, the, all of the methods that we use for blood safety that include donor screening, nucleic acid testing, and more of the uh, approaches that we use um, for assuring uh, safety of the blood supply, including the use of pathogen reduction technology for treating blood products, are meant to be safeguards uh, for preventing transfusion transmission of disease and allowing these products to be used for their therapeutic benefit with uh, reduced likelihood of complications or issues associated with pathogens that may be present. So what actually then would happen to those blood products when uh, PRT is used? And how are we measuring the effectiveness of that treatment? Well, uh, we could start with looking at performance and of, of how a PRT method performs relative to its effectiveness. And I think in order to define adequate performance, we really have to understand the nature of viral infections. Normally, when patients are infected, there's a short period of time, often called the window period, where the level of virus in the body, if it's a viral infection, is not yet at the levels uh, that are sufficient to detect. Uh, they may be hard to detect, in fact, with uh, nucleic acid testing. And so during that period, uh, the products can still uh, cause transmission of diseases, but we may not know that the individual donor was uh, infected. They may not be symptomatic, and we may not be able to find it in the screening methodology. During that time, the donor may not feel symptoms, uh, in, in, but in their body, the virus is ramping up. It's dividing, it's multiplying. And it could, if it is a transfusion transmitted uh, disease, something which is present with viremia in the blood, it could be transmitted via blood product going from that donor to a, a patient recipient. And generally, uh, the body is then able to recognize the infection and begins to mount an immune response. So the don donor uh, and that immune response may manifest in symptoms that the donor uh, displays fever, lethargy, other types of fatigue, other types of, uh, of uh, effects that are known to occur with viral diseases. And so they may be disqualified during the donor screening period, or uh, they may be asked questions which identify that they had a, a potential exposure to the disease. During the window period, the time from when the virus infects the donor until it's detectable via testing, it is still possible uh, for the donor to transmit that pathogen uh, that they didn't know that they had and that testing wasn't able to detect. Or there may be cases, for example, with emerging pathogens where we don't yet have a test available. And that's where PRT comes into play, uh, pathogen reduction technology methods. They work because they interfere with the ability of the virus to replicate. So the virus is still in the blood product, but it's inactivated. It, it doesn't replicate. It can't cause an infection when it's trans, transferred from the donor to a patient. It's most effective. PRT methods are most effective during that window period uh, when the viral load isn't very high. 
the more virus that's present in a blood sample, the hot, then higher levels of inactivation are going to be needed in order to prevent it from causing uh, transfusion transmission. But during that early period, in those window periods where viremia is low, PRT can have high enough margins of performance where it can prevent disease transmission. I think it's also important when looking at the effectiveness of these methods that we have to be aware of the difference between genome equivalence and the infectivity of a virus. When we measure infectivity by tissue culture or animal infection models, that number truly represents those virus particles which are able to infect cells and thus potentially cause disease. So that number is really the number that needs to be reduced, the number of infectious virus particles in blood products to effectively prevent disease transmission. Do we have a good understanding of how many of those particles must be present in order to really spark a COVID-19 infection? Yeah, I, I think we do have some idea, but first I think important to understand a little background on this. What we found prior to COVID-19 is that in studies that we did very early on in uh, the late 80s, early 90s uh, in the Netherlands, is that lab-adapted strains of viruses, such as uh, we utilized one in for HIV called HIV-3B, uh, you needed about a 1,000 virus particles to get one infectious particle. Um, however, when you looked at actual samples that we took from donors in the Netherlands at the time who had been identified as being HIV positive, when you looked at a clinical isolate uh, such as HIV P37, uh, you needed uh, many, uh, as many as um, 1 million virus particles in order to get one infectious particle. Uh, so that was an example uh, very early on that taught us that the lab strain was likely so much stronger because it was adapted to grow in cell culture and hence it was much more efficiently reproduced in the infected cells. Uh, this observation has been supported by other observations that are published for other viruses, including West Nile virus and, and a whole slew uh, of other agents that are now in the literature. Our studies, similar studies of SARS-CoV-2, shows that the number is about 500 for particle to plaque forming unit or PFU ratio, uh, meaning essentially that you need 500 particles of SARS-CoV-2 in order to get one infectious particle. Some of the prior work with PRT methods demonstrated the ability to inactivate a similar virus, Middle East Respiratory Coronavirus or MERS-CoV, uh, in plasma collections. My lab recently published data on the performance of one of these PRT methods uh, to inactivate uh, the new coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 in plasma and in whole blood using the same methodology. The data showed the ability of this method uh, to inactivate greater than three to greater than four logs of the virus in these products. So again, this is in inactivation of infectious dose because we're measuring it in, in tissue-based uh, infectivity assays. It's not just based on copy number, which from the data that I described earlier could be as much as two logs higher in total number of particles uh, that may be present, but only represents a fraction that are uh, truly infectious. Yeah, which, which makes a lot of sense. What else would you say then is important or should be considered when it comes to a successful PRT treatment? Well, I think importantly uh, to be useful, 
these methods have to not only inactivate the virus, but they have to do so without affecting the quality and integrity of the plasma uh, that you're using or intending to use for transfusion support or therapeutic activity in patients. The most important feature right now in this regard, it may not be the only one, but one of the more most important ones with respect to convalescent plasma is the integrity of the neutralizing antibodies that are present. If the method of PRT that's being used damages the neutralizing antibodies, uh, then their utility is, is going to be limited in application. Some of the prior work from my lab showed the ability of these methods to preserve general plasma function, despite some changes in coagulation factors after treatment, be able to retain those activities uh, over two years in in frozen storage. That's published data. That data really showed uh, the retention of general complement and overall IgG and IgM values, but it didn't test for specific neutralizing antibodies against any particular viral agent. It was a very generic assessment that we did at that time. Most recently, however, and, and this is data that we have not yet published, my lab has repeated this work with regard to specific neutralizing antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus measured in convalescent plasma samples. And what we have seen, what the data showed, is that there was no change after treatment of these products in, in, with PRT in regard to the levels of neutralizing titers observed. So that's actually a good outcome relative to um, the effectiveness of the process without damaging the therapeutic benefit of those products. Um, the data, I think also importantly, we didn't just look at overall IgG or IgM in those products, but we looked at levels of anti-RBD, which is receptor binding domain antibody. Um, that's been identified by several investigators, including uh, Rabiani et al., which is a, a publication that's came out recently as being critical for convalescent plasma performance. So these subsets of antibodies may indeed be more important than just the overall total amount of neutralizing antibody that's identified in samples. And what we found from the studies that have been done, and this is uh, being prepared for publication, it hasn't been published yet, but it will be submitted shortly. What we were able to show is that uh, those uh, levels of anti-RBD, anti-S1 spike protein uh, were, were also well-maintained uh, after PRT treatment, which again is a positive outcome in terms of being able to treat these products with these methods while retaining their, their uh, neutralizing antibody levels correlated with the therapeutic uh, benefit of the product. So this is really a fantastic background, a really, really great introduction. So thank you for that. So I can try to close it out. I would sort of ask, what is the position of, say, the FDA and other bodies around the use of PRT methods for treating blood products that are being used as therapy for COVID-19? Well, I, I think there have been several pronouncements that have been made by different organizations, and they, they don't all uh, follow the same script. I think it depends upon their circumstances and the community that they're serving, uh, what their recommendations have been. The World Health Organization, for example, uh, did not recommend the use of PRT um, because there was no evidence of transmission by blood. They didn't say you shouldn't do it, but they didn't require or recommend that you should do it. And again, they were, as, as stated, there is, is not direct evidence uh, that we see transmission of uh, COVID-19 via blood products at this time. Um, the FDA uh, basically stated that if uh, it is currently used, 
if there are methods that are currently being used, it, the use should continue. So not necessarily calling for all products to be treated, but certainly saying if you're currently doing this, uh, don't stop. That should continue, but not calling for broader expansion uh, necessarily just as a response to the emergence of this disease. The EU Commission uh, very similarly said only if it is currently in use would they recommend that it continue to be used, not necessarily calling for the expansion of the use of PRT methods uh, for blood products as a response to uh, COVID-19 disease. The International Society of Blood Transfusion, the ISBT, uh, encouraged uh, the use and implementation of the method where it was feasible. And again, there are a lot of reasons why in some locations it's practical, it's logistically practical, it's logistically feasible to do this, but in other cases it's not necessarily so. There there are a lot of factors that go into the implementation of these methods. So I think the ISBT's recommendation was to say it it probably is a a precautionary idea, uh, but do it if it's feasible. Don't do it if it's going to bankrupt your system or it's going to cause logistical issues which affect the delivery of these products to patients, which I think makes sense. In general, uh, there is what we call a precautionary principle in medicine that says that in the absence of evidence, uh, it is best in medical practice uh, to use precautions until more is known. And I think that is uh, a factor that goes into much of what we do from a a blood safety uh, standpoint, and particularly when you have an emerging disease that we don't know a lot about. Uh, there's always the potential that uh, we could be surprised. And so these safeguard measures, which are put in place, at least until we know more, act as a precautionary approach, a proactive approach to be able to reduce, further reduce the likelihood of disease transmission if such is known to occur or be suspected or have the potential to at least occur. Why hasn't that been a driver here uh, to lead to more calls for direct implementation? Well, I think that uh, a large factor of that is cost. And it's cost at a time uh, when it's difficult to justify or manage increased costs for introducing uh, these new methods. Uh, As I mentioned, there are locations around the world today that do this in routine for all of their products. There are some places that use a more selective approach based on the risk profile of the patients uh, that are that are being transfused. And I think that will continue. Uh, hopefully, there will be broader implementation as the cost profiles of these products uh, continue to uh, drop into re- uh, regions where uh, it becomes more accessible. That's really a goal, I think, that everyone has been working towards, but it is a factor which impacts decision-making today just out of necessity and the realities of uh, transfusion medicine and the economics associated with it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation today with Dr. Goodrich. So I wanted to personally, again, thank you very much for this fascinating discussion and for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. So I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast episode about COVID-19 infection and pathogen reduction technologies. Uh, Make sure to review the sections within this podcast description for reading materials we've suggested. There you'll find the studies that Dr. Goodrich referenced and materials for further learning and education. So based on today's podcast, I leave you with our pop quiz. What are the two key principles to consider for PRT to be effective in the case of convalescent plasma? You can always go back and listen again if you missed it.
So thank you so much for listening today. Please subscribe to the Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we will be discussing more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 75 years, because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and see you.